Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, summer's for reading. So what do you want to read? Looking for a beach novel? I'd recommend John 21. Disciples haven't caught anything all night. Jesus shows up on the beach. Says, hey, net other side. They catch 153 big ones. Rush to the beach to see Jesus. And what does he already have? Fish. <laughs> He's making breakfast. Really, it's a beach comedy. What are you looking to read? You're looking for a romance novel? Before you read Twilight, I'd recommend Song of Solomon. Five bucks if you can get through the entire thing without blushing. Looking for the next great espionage novel? Before you run to Le Carre, why don't you check out Joshua? How about some war? Before Tom Clancy, there was Judges and Kings. Looking to wade into epic poetry? Well, you better check out Job, the Prophets, and the Psalms before you go running to Homer, Simpson, or otherwise. What about philosophy? Well, there's Proverbs and its darker cousin Ecclesiastes over and above Wittgenstein and Nietzsche. Or maybe you're just looking for some motivation. Well, you got to check out this new self-help author named Paul. Doesn't need a last name. He wrote this great book called Second Thessalonians where he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. The Bible doesn't so much defy genre, it defines genre. The reason why the bookstore and the library have so many different sections is because the, the Bible provides them. If you are bored in the Bible, hey buddy, it's your fault, because there really is something for everyone. The girls have Queen Esther, the boys have Samson. The white-collar workers have the tax collectors, Matthew and Zacchaeus. The blue-collars have Joseph and his son Jesus, the carpenters. Parents have Deuteronomy, and children have Jesus upholding them as the model of faith. If we are bored with the Bible, it's only because we fail to realize what it really is. It's a fairy tale. Before there was Moby Dick and Melville, there was Leviathan and Job, Isaiah, and the Psalms. Before there was a dragon from Mordor, there was Revelation telling us from the dragon from hell. Before there was Narnia, there was a war raging between the serpent and the lion of Judah. Before there were books, there was one book. And that one book has it all, history, romance, philosophy, poetry, and even comedic relief. Fairy tales don't exist to tell children that dragons are real. Children already know that dragons are real. Fairy tales exist to tell the children and provide them with a St. George, a Peter Pevensey and his siblings like Lucy, an Aragorn, and Harry Potter to slay the dragon. The Bible doesn't exist to tell you that the devil is real. It is obvious that he is. The Bible tells you about Jesus Christ, who crushes the serpent's head. So today in Matthew 10, our Lord tells us about a sword that pierces deeper than Arthur's Excalibur, family strife more dire than Cinderella, and he gives you a quest, a quest more noble than the one that Lord Farquaad 
bequeathed to the ogre. And that quest is quite the reward. Eternal life and eternal glory. But first, my friends, a sword and a cross. So first, a sword. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, the key here is that little phrase, to the earth. Of course, Jesus comes to bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. When he was born, the angels announced peace. After his crucifixion and his resurrection, he appears to the apostle, apostles and says no less than three times, peace. He comes to bring peace, just not peace, to the earth. There's a lot of dragons, there's a lot of beasts to slay first before the peace can commence. God comes here to do some construction, but before you do construction, there has to be some demolition. And our God's trash can is a sulfur pit. Now, swords are mentioned over 400 times in the Bible. Beginning in Genesis with the cherubim, who wields swords of fire, and ending in Revelation, where the one who is named Faithful and True rides on a white horse, wears a robe dipped in blood, pulls a sword out of his mouth to slay the beast, the kings of the earth, and all who belong to them. It's the first thing about swords. They conquer. Jesus is interesting in conquering. If a king is going to win back his kingdom, he's got to be willing to fight. The colonists could not just tell the Brits, hey, we don't like your tea and your crumpets, so we're leaving. You've got to back those words up with some oomph. You've got to be willing to fight, and so our Lord is. Satan is not going to just willingly give up his kingdom. And I, for one, am comforted by the fact that our God is a man of war, a dread warrior, as Jeremiah told us about last week. The second thing that swords do, though, is that they divide. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, even dividing families. That is what Jesus speaks of today. We've all heard stories of the Civil War about family members shooting at each other. Well, it's kind of like that with Jesus, just taken to an eternal level. His own family did not like him. And he forsook them to take up his cross, but later received them back. There really are two kinds of people in the world. There are believers and unbelievers. And the blood of Christ is thicker than any blood of any family. Now, oftentimes, families are the biggest blessings that we have. For anything like me, parents brought you to the baptismal font, gave you as an inheritance the faith, which is the most blessed, most important thing that you could ever pass on to your children, because it is eternal. And for that, thanks be to God. But oftentimes, families get in the way of Jesus, especially in first century Judea. If anybody confessed Jesus to be the Christ, they were thrown out of the synagogue, totally ostracized. If a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness becomes a Christian today, they're totally forsaken by their family. If a Muslim were to become a Christian, they would be threatened with death. And that is where the church steps in to become their family, to take care of them. Jesus is saying 
you must cling to him above everything else, no matter the cost, because Jesus and only Jesus, not even your earthly families, can take care of you for all of eternity. It means, if necessary, you must be willing to let go of earthly security, earthly wealth, and your earthly family. But Jesus wants to provide you with a heavenly and an eternal wealth, and a heavenly and an eternal security, and a heavenly and an eternal family. Now the second thing on our quest today is a cross. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now if Adam had not sinned, there still would be a sword, because you do need a way to chop off the serpent's head. But if Adam had not sinned, there would be no cross. But Adam did sin, so here we are. We have a sword and a cross, which means that the enemy must die. But now, so must we. Satan is the Hebrew word for accuser. You heard it here, the devil is a lawyer. Maybe you already knew that. Always making sure that God is playing according to the rules. He is the prosecutor saying, God, you better stick according to the law. And that is because Satan won Adam legally, via the law. God laid down his law, don't eat. Well, Satan got Adam to break the law. And so, Satan won him legally, and the contract was now Satan's. He owned humanity. In order for God to win back humanity, he would have to do so legally. That is, via the law. And the law says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so that is exactly what Satan demands. Satan will only relinquish his hold on humanity if God gives up his own life. It's the kind of deal that Aslan makes with the wicked witch. Now in Matthew 10, we see now explicitly, for the very first time in the Bible, how this is going to play out. This is the first time in the Bible that the cross is mentioned. Now it's foreshadowed throughout the entire Old Testament. It's there. There's trees in Genesis, a bronze serpent in Numbers, a curse in Deuteronomy for anyone who hangs from a tree. But now Jesus says it for the first time, that he comes with a sword and a cross. This is the first time in the Bible that the cross is mentioned. And significantly, it refers to your cross. I'm afraid we've made Christianity a little too easy. Go to class for two years, then don't show up again. Put 20 bucks on the plate every now and then, make you feel like you did your due diligence. No, Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow him. He says, if you're not willing to do so, you are not worthy of him. And if the picture of a cross is too unfamiliar, let's use some modern day language, Stark, sit in your electric chair and follow me, Jesus says. Because in order to find your life, you must lose it first. I've always hated the phrase, God only wants one hour of your week. It's so stupid. It doesn't take into account things like coffee hour. And besides that, he wants all 168 of them. Now this one hour is the most important hour. It's your Sabbath, where you hear the word of God and you rest in God. Man does not live by bread alone, but here God gives you heavenly bread. Jesus gives you his very body, which gets you 
by week after week and you need it. But nevertheless, that is to prepare you for the rest of your life, which God wants. Now, if that is too daunting, well, then start small, as Jesus suggests. Start with a cold cup of water. Give it to a disciple. Even an act like that does not go unnoticed by our Lord. He is extremely generous. And soon, after you start doing small things like that, you will notice that our God is a consuming fire. We thought that our children fell away from the faith because they thought that all of this Christian stuff was just a fairy tale. But in reality, it's because we failed to realize how real the dragon, the beast, the four horsemen, the gold-paved streets, and the emerald throne really are. It really is a dragon for us to slay, and we must be willing to lay down our lives, Jesus says. But that is a life that is worth living, because here is how it ends. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Your life has a sequel, and unlike Caddyshack 2, the sequel is better than the original. I'm tempted to end, and they lived happily ever after, but we're not quite there yet. And I want you to realize how expensive that line really is. So instead, we'll just end how the Bible ends. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen.